Well, this morning we uh, took um, a broad view of uh, Jonah, uh, chapter 1 and 2. Jonah, chapter 1 and 2. And uh, we saw that uh, mission is the accomplishing of God's sovereign sending purpose. Uh, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, uh, arise, go. Uh, The the church stands under that command still today. Uh, Secondly, we saw uh, of God's sovereign supervision uh, in the life of Jonah, the life of the sailors, uh, even down to the detail uh, of the life uh, of a big fish. Uh, God sovereignly superintends All things, uh, we call it technically and wonderfully, the providence of God, great providence of heaven. And then thirdly, we saw uh, the mission of God coming into all its splendor and incomparable salvation of God, God's sovereign salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This evening, uh, we're coming to chapters 3 and 4. So shall we first uh, read uh, the word of God? Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent, and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. 
Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, Is it better for me to die than to live? But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labour, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come to your word and we simply ask that you will search us and try us and see if there be in us any evil way, O Lord. We pray this evening, Lord, that you will humble us from any pride, that you will deliver us from any cold detachment in relation to who you are and what your purposes and plans are for those in this city and the towns and the villages of our lands and of our continent. O Lord, in this evil day and evil hour, May we see you again arise and through repentance and faith and believing God, Lord, that many uh, will come to humble themselves and we too will be humbled under the mighty hand of God and will be willing to wait until you lift us up and until you show grace and mercy. O Lord, speak to us through your word. For Jesus' name's sake, amen. <clears throat> well, I'm sure if we were to share together this evening, I'm not that kind of pastor and I don't come from that kind of church where I often tell people, turn to the person next to you, I'm not going to do it. But if I were to ask you this evening to share with the person next to you what gets you angry. I wonder how honest we would be. I wonder how willing we would be to share those things that really churn up our anger. 
what really gets you upset? What is it that comes in family life or in work life or in church life that really turns your world upside down? In that sharing exercise, I don't think that many of us would say, well, do you know what really gets me going is this. God shows mercy and compassion to sinners. I'm a sinner. God has shown me mercy and compassion. Anybody who comes into the kingdom of God, to the degree that they know it initially, it will grow and grow, and they will become aware more and more that God really is merciful. We would not be here. We would not stand. We would not even sit. We would not breathe if it were not for the mercy and the compassion of God. God be merciful to me, a sinner, is the continuing prayer of the believing heart. So, does it not come as a shock and a surprise and indeed a mystery to most people who come to speak on this chapter that Jonah is angry at an effective ministry. We pray for conversions. We pray for repentance. We pray for a response. We sometimes say, some response, Lord. Some commentators and academics will ask the question, well, perhaps their repentance wasn't genuine. It was the sackcloth and ashes. That's the Middle East for you. They go all out on the public display. What's going on in the heart? Well, Jesus said they repented. I'll take you to the verses and the chapter in a moment. So if Jesus says they repented, I'm happy as a humble preacher to follow Jesus. This was at least a measure of repentance. At least it was a start. At least it was beyond the first session of Christianity Explored. These people had come to some kind of realization. Not just the people But the man in the palace, the king, monarchy, the ruler, is giving a decree. And I'm sure if this message came from Buckingham Palace tomorrow, if this message came from wherever, Sandringham, Windsor, wherever Her Majesty may be, this is the command. If the government put out this statement tomorrow, there it is in the Times, there it is in the Guardian, there it is in the Daily Mail. And we surely we'd think... Well, there may be something happening, and we take hold of it, and we want to see it furthered and deepened. So why, oh why, is Jonah struggling to get to grips with the God of grace? He's already said salvation belongs to the Lord. The plan of salvation, the purpose of salvation, the ownership of salvation... The accomplishment of salvation, the application of salvation, it all belongs to the Lord. And yet, when God seems to be applying it, Jonah is angry. So, I am suggesting this evening, I think my title was The Goal of Mission. The goal of mission is to proclaim God's compassion. Now, Uh, hear me, Uh, it is to complain God's compassion and abounding love. 
We do know that God has called in his justice, in his holiness. Uh, He's called men and the women of Nineveh. He's seen their evil. He's seen their wickedness. God isn't bypassing the standards of his law. Evil is evil. Wickedness is wickedness. And God is calling them to account for it. But there is here this message coming across. Indeed, Jonah has understood what God is doing, but he can't accept what God is doing. So the compassion that leads God to gracious acts of deliverance, that is one of the goals, surely, of mission, is to go into all the world and to declare, although we deserve the wrath and we deserve the punishment, and it is fully, absolutely righteous of God to show his wrath and punishment to all evil, to all wickedness, Wherever it is found, in whoever it is found, whenever it is found, however it is expressed, God is just in all his ways. But, but, in the words that we read this evening of Moses, they're repeated in the book of Romans by Paul, aren't they? God's sovereign right to declare, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. God does not consult with anyone about showing, displaying, demonstrating his mercy, his compassion, and his abounding love. And we do have on the grounds not only of Jonah, but the whole of Scripture to say that God's concern and pity is at the centre of his mission purposes. The words of 2 Peter 3 came to my mind. Not wanting anyone to perish. There'll be some here this evening and uh, others in the world of uh, Christianity, evangelicalism that we belong to. We may struggle with some of the outworkings of this, but he doesn't want anyone to perish. It's declared by Peter. But everyone to come to repentance. It's not saying that everyone will come to repentance. It's not saying that no one will perish. But God doesn't want anyone to perish and everyone to come to repentance. So these chapters of Jonah, in line with the rest of Scripture, we need to catch what one uh, commentator calls the heartbeat of God, the heartbeat of God's mission. We need to soak ourselves long and deep in the amazing grace, astounding compassion, abounding love of God I've already said this is not in conflict with his holy justice and punishment. Isaiah 28, 21 says, His judgment and wrath are his strange work, his alien task. Micah 7, 18 says, He delights. He delights in mercy. And this mercy has already begun. Hasn't it? Chapter 3, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. I love that story of Thomas Chalmers. He knocked on a door. He did door to door as the pastor of the church. And he knocked on the door. And, uh, uh, you know, because of the way that the visitation structure was set in the particular Presbyterian church he belonged to, he'd be knocking on that door I don't know how many times. Well, a man opened it one day and... uh, uh, Thomas Chalmers said, oh, you're in. Oh, I've been in the 19 times before when you've knocked. And I thought, any man who knocks on my door 19 times deserves me to open the door. So keep knocking on doors. God here comes to knock. 
if I can use that illustration, God comes again to knock on the door of Jonah. He does not abandon his servant. And so there is compassion and mercy demonstrated in God's dealings with uh, Jonah. The Lord came a second time. The Lord comes again to restore Jonah and to recommission him. You're reminded, aren't you, a little of Peter. Uh, Jesus comes to Peter to recommission him. Peter has denied Christ. Denial is a serious sin. To deny Christ to, uh, with the ferocity and with the intentionality that Peter denied Christ. Uh, we can't beat around the bush. That has a sin of disobedience. And yet, God is merciful. God is kind. Uh, God comes to pick up those that have fallen sometimes into the most awful of sins. There's no kind of feeling in the text that Jonah has repented or we have some great awareness. Perhaps the prayer in chapter 2 and the psalm is an awareness. God comes again to Jonah. Uh, Mission focus has a restoring a restoring element. Look at what God says. It's not much different, is it, to what we had in chapter 1. Arise, go to Nineveh. The command, the commission has not changed. The direction of the mission, where you're to go, has not changed. And uh, you have a message, and I'll tell you that message. Uh, We have the message in chapter 1. It was most probably not much uh, different. Uh, God puts Jonah back on course uh, for the mission as he restores Peter after his denial. It's one of the great goals of God in mission to restore, to restore his people that they may walk in the paths that God has ordained uh, for them. You may know of many Christians uh, this evening and uh, they have gone far away from God. Jonah went far. God brought him back one well-known American preacher tells us of the God, like in the prodigal son, he's brought back. Jonah is brought back. Uh, Don't give up. Don't give up on family members. Don't give up on church members that have wandered far away. We have the God who comes a second time. Indeed, we know perhaps in our own lives it's more than twice. He's been knocking and wants us back, (coughs) serving him uh, where we Uh, can be in his uh, will. So I want us to look at chapters 3 and 4 in the backdrop of all uh, I've said. I want us uh, to look at uh, how God deals first with the Ninevites, the repentance of pagan Gentile Ninevites. Secondly, the response of Jonah, which we've already started to touch upon, And then, uh, finally, the reaction of God. So the Ninevites, Jonah, God. The repentance of pagan Gentile Ninevites. I've already hinted, how do we know they repent? There's much discussion amongst uh, commentators and preachers on that. I'm uh, willing to settle for the uh, words of Christ, Matthew 12, 41. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. As the Son of God, while he is here on earth, reflects on these events, uh, he says there is repentance here. Uh, 
And that proclamation lies at the heart of mission. It's a call to men and women to repent. The Lord Jesus Christ, as he begins his own public ministry, he calls men and women to repent. Uh, It's a great word of hope. There is a way out. There is another direction. You can turn. You're going in the wrong direction. You can turn. There can be a turn of mind. There can be a turn of heart. Affections, desires can be redirected to God as they were away from God. And although they were evil and wicked, and we saw this morning how evil, how wicked the Ninevites and the Assyrians were, and the king of Assyria himself. And yet, there is a call in mission that goes out, let the wicked... Let the wicked of Nineveh, let the wicked of London, let the wicked of Wales, let the wicked of the Middle East, let the evil that we see in many movements and in many philosophies and in many uh, secular and humanist and increasing uh, immoralities all around us, there is a call. There's a call away from it. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn. Turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, he will freely pardon. And we see here that there is at least an outward humbling and contrition. Sackcloth and ashes were an indication of that. And the king himself is humbled. This king, with all the pomp, And with all the splendor and with all the majesty of his role as a king of a Middle Eastern kingdom, an influential Middle Eastern kingdom, we find him here in the dust. And he's calling that man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. He's not just encouraging a kind of a quick fix. He's saying the call has to be mighty. In other words, it has to be from the deep. It has to be from the bottom of our hearts Because we recognize we are sinful, we recognize we are wicked, we recognize something uh, of the God that is calling us to account uh, for our sins. And so uh, the uh, decree, the decree of the king here is a significant one. It's fascinating. Verse 8, we are told it, it grips the city. Let everyone turn from his evil way. And from the violence, this is the particular issue that manifested itself in, in a Syrian political and military might at the time. It's a very specific call. The seriousness that, that grips the city. And the sackcloth and the fasting, of course, is telling people, do you know this is more important than food and drink? I am not against mission agencies. Indeed, we support mission agencies that want to take food and drink to people. It was C.H. Spurgeon that says, if you're going to give them a tract, put it in a sandwich if they're hungry. I'm told he said that. If he didn't say it, I think it's a good phrase anyway. We cannot, if we have compassion, we cannot be indifferent to the needs of people uh, around us. And we are thankful for the agencies who take compassion, medical and educational mercy to offer even a cup of water to those. But here, they call for a fast. They say, forget the food, forget the drink. There's a spiritual urgency uh, about the mission 
that uh, we are being told about here in uh, Jonah. The king is telling the people to seek God seriously. And we are told in, uh, in chapter 3 uh, and in verse 5, the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, it seems the simplest of statements, but just take this in the culture, take this in the pagan culture, uh, take this in the Gentile, a multi-God, multi-faith context that these people uh, found themselves. They are now saying, God, we believe him, we trust him, we accept his declaration, we accept his assessment of our wickedness and our evil. Uh, we, we are believing. Now, it may be the simplest and the most initial faith, but the text says the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. I say again, although some commentators tell us this may be very superficial, I'd be amazed as a pastor if on the night that I preach, that the following day the elders get in touch with me and say we're having a call to repentance. We're having a season of humbling in the church. We're having a week of prayer. We need to show that we're serious with God. There's something happening uh, here as a result. These people are, are being reminded of all this. I don't know whether you sing the song here uh, in Christian hymns, Restore, O Lord, the honour of your name. Is that the cry of this church and our churches? In works of sovereign power come shake the earth again. Just shake it to this level. That would be a start, wouldn't it? That men may see and come with reverent fear to the living God whose kingdom shall outlast the years. Mission brings you to see we, we need a great intervention. We need a great work. We need a movement of God's spirit that brings people to this level of seriousness, to this level of recognition about dealings with God where they come to see their evil and their wickedness. This is the response of the Ninevites to God. And all that creates our second point, Jonah's response. It's one of the mysteries, or as a trendy modern commentator puts it, it's one of the shockers of the Bible. Actually, I want to suggest, if you're not shocked by it, we haven't started to what another commentator calls to, to feel the text here. You have to feel the text. God blesses his ministry, and he's displeased, and he's angry. That's what he said in verse 2 and 3. Indeed, it's repeated. Take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? It's a little bit like the contrast of this morning, isn't it? We saw this morning that we see the wickedness of the pagan Gentiles, but the disobedience of the believer. Here we see the initial beginnings of repentance and change and understanding of the greatness of God and the exposure of sin and evil in the lives of Gentile pagans. And yet the believer, indeed God's servant here, is, is near suicidal because God has done something. And, you know, I knew you'd do that. There is a mystery here, for me anyway. I was reminded, and others before me have been reminded here, the elder brother 
in the parable of the prodigal son. The older brother, you remember, the younger brothers come back uh, and the father uh, says, put on the robe, put on the ring, embraces and kisses him. Go out and get the fatted calf. Uh, In other words, it's time to rejoice. Your brother was dead and now he's uh, alive. And we're told the older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so the father doesn't give up with the older brother. He, he pleads with him. And I think we get a sense here of God pleading with Jonah, man, man, what's wrong with you? What, what don't you understand here? What don't you get? And it's difficult to know why is Jonah near suicidal over the display of sovereign grace and mercy? Did he think that God should have shown only wrath and judgment. Don't the wicked deserve that? Especially the wicked Ninevites. Indeed, I have biblical proof, Jonah would have said, from the prophecy of Isaiah. God is going to dismantle Assyrian culture, Assyrian armies, Assyrian wickedness. Indeed, you come to the book of Nahum and God has nothing good to say about Assyria. It's over. It's done finished but at this time God says that he will relent that he will bring into play another aspect of his character another aspect of his attribute it doesn't contradict the one but it blends with the other God is showing mercy what's Jonah saying is he saying well why save such an evil rebellious people that will one day destroy Israel. Is this an overzealous nationalism? On St. David's Day, I'm willing to talk about nationhood, but is there an overzealous nationalism that says to God, you can't bless there, you can't bless here? Is this what's happening? You remember the disciples responding to the lack of welcome for Jesus in the Samaritan village. Jesus, Luke 9, turns his face to Jerusalem. Well, he's turned his face to heaven via Jerusalem. And the first port of call is a Samaritan village. The love and the grace of Jesus to visit a Samaritan village, a a Gentile-influenced village, a pagan village. And they don't want anything of him. They say, no, thank you. No welcome here. And how do the disciples respond? When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Jesus has to rebuke them. This is not the time. There is to be a time, a final judgment. There is to be a final display of wrath. But before the time of wrath, before the time of judgment, God here for the Ninevites There's to be a moment of restoration, there's to be a moment of redemption, there's to be a moment where he shows his mercy and his grace. Was Jonah angry because another nation was being favoured more than his own nation? Is Is God right to do this? Some suggest, as I've suggested, he is suspicious about the genuine nature of their repentance. We better wait and see. Did he believe they didn't deserve God's mercy? Well, if Jonah knew his Bible, and we know our Bibles, no one deserves the mercy of God. Who has the right to act, decide, and demonstrate mercy? 
Well, I quote those verses again. We need to listen to them often. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. God has the right to exercise his sovereign judgment and his sovereign mercy where and when and how he chooses to do so. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The sovereign plan and purpose of God as he predestines, he elects, he chooses, he justifies, he glorifies, when and where, he does as he pleases. Isaiah had to remind people in his day, didn't he, Isaiah 55, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. God is the chief executive, the chief lead executor. He's the main manager of his own mission. He doesn't need the committees of earth and the committees of churches, however wonderful those churches are, to instruct him on how he must do and when he must do and for whom he must do. Jonah is a servant. He's to serve God. You notice in the text how many times it says, the Lord said, the Lord did this. The Lord does everything. The mission is his. And the way the mission goes forward is always his. And so, what has to happen to Jonah here? Well, Jonah has to be brought in line with the heart. And particularly at the end, we see the the pity and the compassion of God. He's a valued servant, but he's protecting. God's protecting him from his own folly. And his own, if I may call it again without being insensitive, and I hope not offending anybody, from his own emotional chaos at this time. He wants to die. He wants to give up. Because God has blessed his ministry. And so Jonah is exposed again. This time it's not a fish. At this time it's a hut and a plant and a worm. And God uses the hut and the plant and the worm to teach Jonah again the foolishness of his thinking. As one modern hymn writer puts it, God will use the sun and the rain of his sovereignty to get us to see the wisdom of his ways, the perfect wisdom of God. And we see it here. God graciously covers the hut with a shade. God is protecting graciously his servant. But then the servant, rather than coming to trust God, starts to trust the hut and starts to trust the plant. Well, that's no good, is it? God gives us many gifts, and we are sometimes foolish, we are misled to believe, well, if God gives me the gifts I want and the gifts that I need, he's a good God. But what if God takes away the gifts? And if God takes away sometimes the blessings that we've enjoyed, health, strength, abilities, mind, many, many gifts around us, and God takes those away, Are we going to stop trusting God? The Ninevites believed God. They believed God. Jonah seems not to be able to believe God. He's enjoying the gifts of God. And God takes those gifts away. And we see that God exposes him. 
The sun rose. God appointed a scorching east wind. See, God's at work appointing a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he's still asking to die. And God has to come to him and says, Jonah, you still do not understand. You're living for the blessings. You're living for the joys. You're living for the things that I'm giving you. And I'm not withholding them, but now I'm taking them away because I want you to be closer to me. We quoted the verse this morning. It's easier to quote than believe all things. The sun, the hut, the plant, the worm, all things, the storm, are working together for the good of those that love God. There are so many strange elements in the mission plan of God. Things seem to go wrong. Things don't turn out as we expected. And we can be taken as Christians and Christian pastors even to the pit of disappointment. It wasn't quite what we expected it to be. But we have to come to realise God is at work. It brings us finally to the great goal of mission. And it's simply this, God must be God. God must be God all over the world. God must be God in the life of a believer. God must be God in the church. God must be God in evangelism and mission. God must be God. And what is the last word of God here? Well, the last word of God is to say to Jonah, I want you to look and I want you to ponder and I want you to think and I want you to reflect not on the plans and the strategies of mission. I want you to reflect on me. And if you miss everything in this story, Jonah, you need this. You've been pitying a plant for which you did not labor and you did not make it grow, which came into being in night and perished in a night. You know, we can have pity for all kinds of things. There are economic issues, there are environmental issues, there are social issues, there are educational issues, there are political issues, all these issues. And Christians must be there, salt and light. But you can be thinking of all these issues and you've forgotten at the heart of it all is the God of pity and compassion. And how we can lose that. And Jonah has been told you, should not I pity Nineveh? Are you suggesting that I not express my pity? And that I not demonstrate my pity? And that I not show my compassion? This is my, this is a work that delights me. It's not about delighting you or even delighting the pagans. God is to be delighted. God is to be honoured. God is to be praised. God is to be God. Sovereign God. And one of his sovereign works is his pity and his compassion. He excels in this. The God of the nations know little. Indeed, the more you study of the gods of the nations, they know nothing of this. How to show compassion. And if you think of your family, if you think of your community, if you think of your workplace, if you think of the huge issues facing society at this time, it might be that we sometimes think, Lord, judge, Lord, punish, Lord, show your wrath. But is there something in us that says this is the moment in our culture, this is the moment in our civilization of all things above others that men and women need to know in the brokenness of their sin and their wickedness that I need to know 
in my rebellion and in my disobedience. Oh, to know more and more of the compassion of God. Uh, One missiologist says it like this. Mission is about getting our hearts to beat in time with the heartbeat of God. By nature, our hearts are wicked and disobedience. We need to be changed. We need a new heart. We need new desires. We need a new affection. Affection. See and feel again the compassion of God. When God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and the mission was extensive, he saw the crowds. He saw the crowds and that means he, he saw their needs, he, he saw their plight, uh, he saw the confusion, he, he saw the sin. Indeed, he weeps over Jerusalem, the capital city. He weeps over it all. But when he saw the crowds, what did he have? Compassion. He had compassion on them. A lady prayed in our prayer meeting the other day as we, we were welcoming uh, homeless people in over these cold nights with other churches in the town, and she said, Lord, Give me a heart of compassion. Now, she's a lady. The more I've got to know her, she has um, a sweet compassion in her own life. But she's asking for more compassion as she sees the needs of those around us. He saw the crowds. He had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, with all the genuine benefits and the hard-earned gains of our evangelical constituency, I am asking myself here, in all that, have I lost the compassion of Christ? Have I become hard? Have I become indifferent? Have I become cold, calculated, detached? Indeed, have I become judgmental? And condemnatory in my thinking. The last verse of Jonah seems a strange end to a book, doesn't it? It ends with a question. And that question hovers over our churches and our lives and our families. You're here in a city, the capital city uh, of these islands. The great city. Do you have compassion for London? Do we have compassion for the towns and the villages? And how are we going to answer that question of God? Should not I pity? Indeed, Lord, if you do not pity, we are lost. Lord, if you do not pity, and if you do not show your pity in great and deep ways, we are undone. We are seeing the unravelling, many commentators tell us, of civilization as we know it. If God does not have pity, we are going to see the total decimation of a civilization built so much of it on Judeo-Christian principles. Will God's concern be mine? Your kingdom come, your kingdom of pity. Your will be done on earth, the pity of God. Are we concerned then for our mission to the city? Are we concerned... And have pity for the mission that we've heard of to the Middle East. I close close with these words of a modern song. There is an everlasting kindness you lavished on us. When the radiance of heaven came to rescue the lost. You called the sheep 
without a shepherd to leave their distress. For your streams of forgiveness and the shade of your rest. What boundless love, what fathomless grace you have shown us, O God of compassion. Each day we live an offering of praise as we show to the world your compassion. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father,